Beast OCR proudly presents BeastNet Podcast, sponsored in part by GH Under's Performance Base Layers and supported by the OCR community. Here we discuss all things OCR related. Welcome to BeastNet. Hey everybody, it's Mike here with BeastNet, and I've got with me Dirk Van Velzen. Um, Dirk, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of let everyone know who you are. Hi, so thanks for inviting me to the show. Uh, I'm Dirk Van Velzen. I've been part of Beast OCR for, I guess, a couple years now, and I joined kind of in my early stages of running these crazy OCRs, and uh, it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It is. So what what was it that brought you into OCRs? Um, I mean, everyone's always got a story on how they just accidentally came into it or a friend drug them into it. What brought you into the OCR community? Okay, so it's kind of funny. For the people that don't know my story, I was incarcerated for a number of years, and when I was in prison, I used to do a lot of CrossFit stuff. So we kind of get the wads from the Internet, we do the wads in the gym, you know, we do the, the Franz and the Elizabeths and all the good stuff. And of course, the Murph also. So we would do these, uh, these CrossFit things all the time, and we would watch them on TV when we could. And every once in a while, when we'd watch the TV shows, the CrossFit games, we would see Spartan races on TV. And so I was kind of totally in the CrossFit thing, and I would see these guys running up and down hills with sandbags and carrying buckets of gravel and all that stuff. It looked terrible. And yeah. uh, and I'm not I'm not a big runner, so I like I just like the fun kind of stuff. So I see these poor guys suffering through this horrible thing. I was like, oh my god, that looks terrible. <laughs> so yeah. I never I never really had any intention of doing them. <laughs> yeah. So I finally decided to to get you into doing it. Well, so I had seen some of those, and I kind of knew about tough mothers a little bit. And then then what happened was part of my crazy story is. After I got out of prison, I went to Stanford, and uh, I did a social entrepreneurship program there, which is super cool. Um, but when I came back to visit some of my colleagues at Stanford, I stayed at one of those couch surfing things where you kind of just pick a couch in the area to sleep on for a week or two. And that's what I did. And I met this really cool chick who worked at Google, and a bunch of her friends, they were all tough butter people. So when I was sleeping on her couch, I kind of got together with them, and we went training for a Tough mother, and we went running up and down, I think it was like Mount Tams, something like that in, in California. And I ended up twisting my ankle and rolling it pretty badly, so I didn't run the, the Tough mother with them. Um, but that kind of is kind of what turned me, because it was this crazy thing I saw on TV that I wanted no part of. And I kind of got involved in this really small community of really super cool people doing this stuff. And, of course, these were a bunch of Googlers that were doing it. And then I came back up to the Northwest. I was like, you know what? It doesn't look that bad. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was a tough mother. You kind of similar to the Spartan race. And then uh, that's how I take a look at it. Yeah. So when did you do – was Spartan your first OCR, or did you do one before that? No. So I had a girlfriend back in those those days, and she didn't want anything to do, do anything super serious like that. that. So – our first race was uh, the Warrior Dash, and mm-hmm. that's got to be that's got to be like the perfect race to introduce a new person to the the community, because of course we walked pretty much the entire race, and in the middle of it, we ran into this uh, brother and sister team from Oak Harbor, and they owned a bar, and so during the race they had a backpack with them, and of course in their backpack it was full of Dick's hamburgers, and the fifth of Crown Royal, so. <laughs> So we That's walked awesome. the race with them, <laughs> drinking Crown Royal and eating hamburgers, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> this, <laughs> really that isn't, this, this is not exactly what I thought it was going to be, and this is super cool. Um, I, know, I know not all the all the races, you know, some of the races take this stuff pretty seriously, but 
but the way they kind of eased, eased me into the whole thing was it was a whole lot of fun. See, now, now I want to do my next race with a bag full of hamburgers <laughs> and a ball of crown. Yeah. You'll find me on, like, the third obstacle just leaning up against the wall like I'm done. We're dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A, my girlfriend ended up not drinking any of the crowns, so it was just between the three of us. And we finished it off, of course, and uh, we had a pretty happy race. I bet. So I was the warrior. Yeah, so what got the, you... What got you to take the step up to the the Spartan races? Yeah, so I did the Warrior Dash, and then I found some kind of Facebook group. It was before the Beast people. It was it was somewhere else, and I was just kind of following along. And someone made a post like, "Hey, who wants to do some training?" And so I met this chick. Her name was Samantha, and she was kind of a like a great fitness coach. And we did mm-hmm. some little little trainings in the park, and I trained with her for a while. Somehow she tipped me off to Jesse, you know, at West Coast, West Coast Obstacles, and yeah. then I got involved with that crew, and then we did some trainings there, and I think someone brought up the Spartan race in general, and it was like, oh, well, I haven't done one of those yet, but I've seen them on TV. <laughs> so, so, yeah, then, then I started, I think I'm going to do my first Spartan race after, after the Tough Mudder, that was my first real race, and that, you know, we yeah. weren't drinking on that one. Um, then after the Tough Mudder, I think I might have done the lard butt or something like that, and then maybe after that was a Spartan race. Wow. So it, are, are you familiar with the lard butt? I am not. That one sounds interesting. That sounds one right at my house. <laughs> <but. laughs> okay, so, so you'll see how serious I'm about these races when I tell you about the lard butt. Okay, so it was at, I think it was at Magnuson Park, and it was a 1K, and instead of hydration stations, they have donut stations and beer stations. And you have to walk from station to station, and if you run, People heckle you, um, so it's really <laughs> it's a 1K walk. You can't go too fast, and there's donut donut stations with Krispy creams and uh, and beer. So it's a uh, oh wow. <laughs> and then you get That's this T-shirt. And, <laughs> then you get a T-shirt that says Large Butt, of course. And like instead of the Cascade Mountain Ranges, it's like it looks like ass cheeks, like plump nice. butt, <laughs> which is of course the Large Butt. Nice. That, now that seems, that unfortunately, sounds right at my alley. But I'm trying to stay away from those kind of races right now. So and you can't even you can't even you can't even burn it off by walking the 1K. So yeah, wow, a 1K race that you can't run. That yeah. See, I did the the top pot donut dash a couple of times. Sounds similar, but I haven't done that one yet. But see, that one they only give you. It's a full 5K, but at the end you get a a donut. At the okay. end. So, I mean, it's not, at, I mean, at least, I mean, one donut, you pretty much go off on a 5K, but, yeah. But I, I've done that one a couple times, and that's a fun one, actually, because it's right around Green Lake. And I love the ones around Green Lake because Green Lake's gorgeous, so. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. It is. So, what got you into the Beast? I know you said you met Jesse and all that at WCO, which, I mean, WCO is great. We all love Jesse, so. In fact, I might be getting some more obstacles from Jesse here next weekend, but. That's a hush hush thing. Shh, don't tell anyone. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is way, way back in 2016, and I can't remember how I transitioned from the Tough Mudder, which is like a pretty serious race, to I think at some point I finally dipped my toe in the Spartan race. I kind of knew what they were, and I wasn't really excited about doing those because I didn't want to do a lot of running. I didn't want to carry sandbags and buckets of gravel. Um, yeah. But so anyways, I so I jumped into one, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was. <laughs> It was no fun at all. And that was kind of that was kind of one of the uh, the charms to these things because the other part of my story is not only have I done a bunch of time in prison, but I also run this nonprofit 
called the Prisoner Scholar Fund, and we have a mission mm -hmm. of opening access to college education for prisoners. Yeah. So, so running a nonprofit with a mission of helping prisoners is kind of tough. It's a whole lot harder than raising money for firefighters or kitty cats. Oh yeah. So the thing is, because everyone likes firefighters and kitty cats. Generally, <laughs> or, or at least cats and dogs, or some like humane society thing. Um, yeah. You know, there's not really it's not a partisan issue, and people don't really hate firefighters or kitty cats. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's a tough mission. It's hard to raise money for, and it's really just a tough space to be in. And since it's a startup, that means I'm working all the time. I never really stop. Yeah. Um, so the charm of these races is when you go to one of them, let's say you're going to do the beast and I walk really slow, it might be six to eight hours of this terrible, terrible thing, but it actually ends at some point. So like when you're carrying that bucket of gravel or whatever you're doing, I think every time in the, the gravel carry was when I always question myself, like, why the hell am I doing this? I don't really yeah, care yeah. anymore because I think I've, I, I kind of, I'm more comfortable with the pain of the, the bucket, but yeah. I used to really have a terrible time with the bucket. And I, I and in the middle of the race, I was like, I am never going to do this again. I would have all those thoughts. And I go, this is just terrible. All I want to do is play on the monkey bars. I don't want to run anywhere. I don't want to carry any buckets of gravel. I don't want to carry any sandbags. I just want to, like, play on the monkey bars and throw spears, and that was kind of fun. But, of course, yeah. you have to do all the other stuff to get there. But anyway, so, like, even though it was kind of part fun and kind of part misery, at some point it actually ended. At the end of it, you cross the finish line. You got a little cheesy metal. You got to drink a beer, no matter how terrible the beer is, and it was done. Yeah. Um, so for those hours, I was not thinking about nonprofit life. I was actually completely detached from that. So I had a little bit of work-life balance, not much, but it was actually a refreshing thing to like beat up your body for a few hours, as opposed to the mental anguish of running a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, and I see that. I mean, it's. It's one of those things I know you've helped a lot in also speaking nonprofit, helping the beast become a nonprofit. Um, but tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit and how that you know how that came about and how how it works. Oh sure, okay. So so really long story short, uh, I ended up in prison for a series of commercial burglaries, and commercial burglaries just means I was breaking into businesses and stealing stuff out of warehouses and from from businesses as opposed to residential burglary which is, you know, breaking somebody's house and stealing their, their TV. Yeah. So I had been doing that for a number of years, kind of throughout, throughout the 90s, and they finally caught up to me, and, you know, long story short, I got about 15 years in prison. So, of course, once you get to prison, you don't really want to be there, but there's not much you can yeah. do about that. What you, what you can do is you can decide how you want to spend your time. So in my case, I decided that, hey, I'll just uh, get the Pell Grant and I'll go to school. Um, oh, hold on. I figured I'll just get the Pell Grant and go to school, and that way I could finish my college degree because I had a couple credits from before. And then, then I found out the Pell Grant was taken away from prisoners back in 94. So yeah. that kind of sucks. So apparently, and I didn't know this then, but before the Pell Grant was taken away, there was like 350 college prison programs in America. Then during the tough on crime days, they took away the Pell Grant. They figured being tough on crime is the same thing as being tough on criminals. So they kind of took away all the programs the criminals had, including rehabilitation programs. Now, of course, if you want to be tough on crime, you increase funding for rehabilitation programs because rehabilitation exactly. programs decrease the amount of people that come back to prison. <laughs> so they yeah. kind of do the if, you don't rehab if you don't rehabilitate them, they have nowhere else to go but back to what they know. Yeah, exactly. So, they, they come to prison yeah. with a bad skill set, and they simmer in a pot for five or ten years, and then – 
they get out with the same skill set and probably a more negative attitude and they just go back to what they're doing. And it was never the plan to lock someone up in a cage for 10 years and think they're going to come out in better shape without yeah. any kind of intervention. But that's kind of exactly what they did. So, of course, once the funding was taken away, the rehabilitation programs kind of disappeared. And, of course, recidivism increased after that. And recidivism is just a term for uh, the rate at which people become reincarcerated once they get released. And yeah. currently it's about 68% after three years. It's like 70-something percent after five years and about 86% after uh, seven years. And it's just like oh, the measurement period. So yeah. a lot of people come back to prison because, you know, all the reasons we just mentioned. And a lot of those people, you know, either they become criminals or they become homeless or some other kind of burden on the system because they don't really have the, school, the tools to get a job, keep themselves out of trouble. And some of those, you know, and rehabilitation is an interesting word because some of these people never really were rehabilitated in the first place. So maybe they had family structures or societal structures where, you know, everyone has a different path to who they became, who they became as a person. Yeah. Some people were raised the right way. Like, like me, I came from a, a pretty solid family, and I just made bad decisions. So I kind of need to be rehabilitated, I guess. But maybe some people, they didn't really have the same upbringing that other people have. And so they, they kind of need to be taught the right way in the first place. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And, I mean, it is, like you said in the beginning, that's kind of the part that kind of hit me is I thought that you could get all of that stuff in prison, the Pell Grants and all that. I didn't know that it was all taken away in the 90s. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that three, the 350 programs dropped to, like, about eight. And those are the privately funded programs. And today we still have a small number, but it's increasing. I think we have about 15 programs. And some of them are really great, but it's pretty, still a pretty small number of programs. Um, you know, Obama kind of brought back a, a second chance Pell Grant program that's serving about 60,000 prisoners with uh, state partnerships. So that's a good, a good step, but we don't know if that's going to be continued or shut down or it's kind of uncertain where that's going to go. See, and that's, that's sad to me because I've always thought that they had all that stuff so that they could – if they were, I mean, people were being re, rehabilitated in prison, and that's what people make it sound like to all of us, you know, that have never been, that people are being rehabilitated, but it sounded like they're not. They're just going to prison and basically going in with one bad skill set, meeting a bunch of people that have the same bad skill sets, and coming back out with more friends, basically. Yeah. It's kind of what it sounds like. So there are some programs that are funded. Like, for the most part, GED programs are funded. But not always. Mm. So let's, let's just say that probably 90% or maybe 85% of all prisoners can get a GED, which is that's a good step. But that's one thing that's federally – yeah, it's better than, better than nothing. And you can yeah. argue that if you don't have a high school diploma or GED, it's almost impossible to get a job, which is probably true. Mm -hmm. And then and then they like to talk – when they talk about rehabilitation, they, and they do have some programs. Those are usually like vocational programs. So yeah. we all have a, like a – a beauty school for the women, a barbershop program for the guys. They'll have flagging courses, you know, like the uh, construction crews that flag on the road. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll have uh, construction courses like, like framing and roofing and siding and sheetrock. You know, not yeah. everyone's coming out for post-secondary work. Some people can just, you know, go straight to the trades. So there are yeah. some vocational programs, and every state's different. You know, every, some states are really great with some. Some states have almost nothing. Um, because that's not really a federal policy, that's a, a state policy. And so it's a, a totally mixed bag of what's available and where you're at. And, of course, if you're in, a pri if you're one of those, in one of those private prisons, you really have no programs at all because they don't, they don't do anything. 
No, that was good. Because, yeah, I know, how, <laughs> I know I used to work with a guy who was in prison for uh, 10 or 15 years, I think. And while he was there, he got his asbestos license to be able to remove asbestos and actually yep. work in the prison removing asbestos so that when he got out, he had an asbestos, you know, supervisor card and could, you know, run crews and stuff like that. One of the greatest workers I ever had. But that's one of the hard parts that I always see is knowing people who have been to prison, people really look down on that. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it's a, it's one of those things that people are like, I've seen multiple times where you look at two applications and one guy's a little bit better than the other, but he's been to prison and somebody's like, yeah, we want to go with the other one. And it's like, but this guy's better. Yeah, but he was in prison. So he made a mistake. He paid his time. Let's bring him on. Nah, yeah, I don't think so. And it's just not giving them an education just makes it that much harder, I would think. I mean, now not only have you been to prison, you have no education on top of that. You know, so I think they should have more of that, more education. Yeah, exactly. It's like if some companies, uh, let's see, I can't remember off the top of my head, but Mod Pizza, I, I think they have over 300 locations, and they're all across America, and I, I think they're overseas now. But they actually started up here in the Northwest, and interestingly, uh, a guy named Scott Svensson started it, and one of his first hires was a marketing guy, and the marketing guy was an ex-con. And it turned out the marketing guy did such a great job, they, uh, they hired another ex-con. And it turned out that it was a really smart business decision because they found out that not only are the people that came out of prison, they're, what do you know, they're talented, they're hard workers, they're really appreciative of having a job, and so the retention rate was higher. You know, they didn't quit. They always showed up at work. They're really loyal, capable workers. And, you know, Mod Pizza grew from a really small company to, you know, I think they're, I don't know, 70 million sales, or I can't remember what it is, but it's a big company now. Oh, yeah, and so now they actually proactively hire people coming out of prison and kind of start off as, you know, pizza makers, but they have a pretty rapid job ladder, you know, to corporate, to corporate jobs too. And that's awesome because, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like you said, when people, when someone's given a job that's right out of prison, they feel appreciative about it, for one, because they know that a lot of people don't want to do that. And two, I always feel like, you know, a lot of them have like a chip on their shoulder and feel like they have something to prove, you know. And that's kind of like I said, I've got one guy that I worked that worked for me that was one of the best supervisors I ever had. And I think that was part of it was he had a chip on his shoulder. He's like, I've been to prison. I know what it's like. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I never go back. And he worked his ass off. And you see that a lot with people like that because they're appreciative of it and they don't want to go back. Yeah, that's great to see. For sure. Yeah. So it's called Prison Scholars, correct? Oh, Prison Scholar Fund. Prison Scholar Fund. So how does, I mean, I know you, you've talked about how the, the Pell Grants aren't there anymore and all that stuff. So how does the Prison Scholar Fund work? Oh, yeah. So I kind of, uh, so more back to the story was once I found out the Pell Grant was taken away, I just kind of had a luck. Um, you know, the money wasn't there. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters to churches and charities and nonprofits and local businesses trying to get them to fund my tuition. And I wasn't even asking for the money for, you know, don't send me a check, send a check to, you know, Penn State. Yeah. Um, but nobody would help out at all. Uh, and finally, it took me about two and a half years. I got my dad on board. So, yeah, I finally sweet talked him into it, got, back, got dad back on Team Dirk, and he paid for my first course at Penn State. And then I just made sure that I would get straight A's all the way through to make him happy, you know, make, so he wouldn't regret the decision. And yeah. so that's what I did. So I really just kicked ass, uh, did really well. I actually got one A minus, but all the rest were A's. 
And then, but, but during that journey, I discovered a lot of people just like myself who are equally smart, equally as hardworking. They all wanted the opportunity to change their lives. But, you know, the, the funding wasn't there from the federal level. They didn't have the access of the checkbook. So they were just kind of screwed. And, you know, if you don't have that opportunity, you're playing cards, you're watching TV, you're doing your little, <laughs> your little fakey CrossFit routine. Um, yeah. Or you're playing cards. Or you're like, there's not, not much you can do in prison with that kind of opportunity. So I, I made the terrible decision of starting a nonprofit from prison. <laughs> and oh. it took me a number. <laughs> yeah. So we made it work. It took a long time. Um, but I ended up raising about 60 grand, running grand from prison. We did like a million bucks in the real world. Like, that 60 grand from prison was a lot of money. And we supported 110 students, uh, which was really cool. And then that was kind of, I was doing that from 2006 to 2009 until I got transferred to a different prison and they kind of, they kind of shut me down. They, they figured out that they didn't really want Dirk running a nonprofit for a prison. So I was kind of on pause from 2009 and 2015. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, during those years, it was just a three-person board of directors on this nonprofit, me, my dad, and a friend, Ruben. Um, then once I got out, we kind of like formed the organization as a real organization. Um, I went to the UW Nonprofit Management School. Uh, I did the Social Venture Partner Fast Pitch thing, which is uh, a kind, of a, kind of a business plan competition. I won first place in that. Then I got into that Stanford program. And then since then, we've just been trying to build the organization, build the board, you know, connect with people who want to support our work, connect with volunteers, and we're just trying to do more over time. And it's kind of funny because it's really frustrating on how, how slow all this takes. Yeah. We have, a whole, we have a whole bunch of Google volunteers, and I have this one guy who uh, is kind of one of my mentors. And I was, you know, kind of complaining about how long all this takes. And he tells, he tells me, he goes, you know, every overnight success takes years and years and years to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that's not kind of a nice way to look at it. And, I mean, it's, I mean, it's awesome what you're doing. But, um, actually, let's take a quick commercial break real quick. Because if we don't, I'll forget about it, and then Adam will get all mad at me for not putting it in again. <laughs> so let's take a commercial break real quick, and then we'll come back, and I, I want to hear more about your nonprofit and how it's, where it's at now. So let's take a quick break. Gray's Harbor Unders makes the performance-based layer clothing you want and need. Whether you work, hunt, hike, fish, run, or ride in the great outdoors. If you work up a sweat, Gray's Harbor Unders are for you because their unique dual-layer fabric removes moisture from your body and keeps your skin dry, even when the outer layer is completely wet. It's a base layer like no other. Get you some at ghunders.com. That's ghunders.com for the best performance-based layer you'll ever wear. Okay. We're back from break. So you're talking about how, you know, it kind of it formulated. Where Where's your nonprofit at now? I mean, it's uh, – where, where's Prison Scholar Fund now? Okay, so where we're at now is kind of in a weird place. So like anyone that knows anything about business, they always tell you to, you know, focus, focus, focus on basically one thing. And what makes it hard for us is we have like three or four things we have to focus on because – First of all, because we've been in existence for a while, we have all these past people we supported. So when I was incarcerated, we, we supported about, you know, 110 people. A lot of them mm -hmm. still want to go to school. So we need to raise money and support them. The second thing we need to do is we need to raise money to build capacity. And building capacity just means we need to raise money to hire staff to raise money. And so you can either run programs or you can invest in the organization. And the idea is, if we just spend all our money giving out scholarships or building programs, we're not going to have any money to hire staff to do more. So, you know, 
in the perfect world, you would spend the first couple of years building capacity so you can build this engine, kind of like a fundraising engine, to raise a whole bunch of money to support the organization and then run a lot of programs as opposed to just having a really, really small organization that can just run a few programs. Yeah. So while we're trying to run programs, we're also trying to build capacity. And um, so it's kind of like trying to fly an airplane and build it at the same time. So, so that just makes it twice as hard. Then, of course, we're trying to build a really cool program instead of just awarding scholarships for paper-based courses, which is kind of what I did from prison. And here's the part I, you know, I didn't really mention. Uh, I was taking classes um, through the mail. So it was basically you, you would submit your assignments on paper, you mail it to the instructor, um, and they would grade them and send them back. And we're trying to build this, this online program. And of course, uh, you, prisons can't be online, so we basically have to take the online program, adapt it for the offline environment, and uh, then the prisons would kind of be in a sort of online program, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's basically an online program that's not online. Exactly. So a lot of prisons, will, they'll have an education department with servers, and those are disconnected from the inter internet. So we're kind of building an, this hybrid online program where we take the online program, download all the information, put it on the server, and then we have to you know, hire staff to upload and download the information. So yeah. it's a little bit of work for an online program, but it's 10 times faster than doing it through the mail. It's, just it's basically an online program that's done offline. Exactly. So it's like the computer set up to be able to do it all, because it's saved on the computer, they just never actually have to go online. Yeah. Okay. And like in my case, I think it took me about 10 years to get a four-year degree just because of all the back and forth. Yeah. So we kind of wants to get that up a little bit. Hmm. This, so, so while, while you, we're – oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay, so while, so while, while we're trying to build that whole thing, um, it's really tough because, not, like, a lot of your money comes from – like, that's why you have to look at it. Like, where does the money come from? Either it comes from the government, or it comes from foundations, or it comes from people, or maybe you have some strategy, like you sell something, like you sell T-shirts or mouse pads. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't really have anything to sell, not like that. And of course, in order to sell something like that, you have to have a whole marketing engine. And we don't, we can't really get too much government money because we're kind of doing the job the government should have been doing in the first place. So the government's yeah. not going to really give us money for doing the job that they they don't want to do. Um, so that kind of leaves people and foundations. Well, foundations, they don't really, you know, very few foundations like to fund capacity building. They always like to fund programs. Um, yeah. But a lot of times they don't like to fund programs. And like in, you know, prison education, that's kind of, it's kind of a weird area for foundations. So there's not a lot of foundational support. So then basically comes down to people are a big supporter. But of course, where does, how does that happen? You know, you can't just like attack people on the street and say, hey, man, give me some money. I mean, you kind of can, and I guess money. that's what marketing is. <laughs> Give me money. Um, so, and that's a long process. It's really called, you know, there's, if you look at the sales funnel, it kind of starts with like friend raising and then fundraising, and then, then you steward the donors through a process of investing in your program. And that whole thing takes a lot of time. So, yeah. you can't just hang your shingle and then think that in six or eight months you're going to be up and roaring. Um, you know, when you start off with zero donors and, you know, maybe 10% growth is a reasonable number, <laughs> it, takes, it takes a long time to get to 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 supporters. Um, yeah, I think after so bad. many years, like I think we have about 100, 110 supporters, which is great. Um, it just takes time. It's a, and, and the funny, another little thing they kind of put into context to me is I went to D.C. back in February to talk to some people. And I ran into this one guy named Mark Maurer, and he was part of the sentencing project. He started that back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And just now, he's actually making some traction. 
And when I talked to him about it, he kind of laughed. He's like, look, man, that's been a slow, steady push for 30 years. <laughs> and now it's actually being effective. So if you kind of look at things in, in those time frames, um, it gives you a certain way to look at it. But of course, I'm kind of an ambitious guy, so it's really hard for me to be that patient. I, you know, I don't want everything yeah. to happen immediately, but it just doesn't really happen that way. I can get that. That would be, yeah. So did you get your degree while you were still incarcerated? Yeah, I got two degrees. I got a degree, uh, an associate's degree in business administration, and then my bachelor's mm -hmm. degree was in organizational leadership. Nice. And then I also, MIT had this open courseware thing. It's kind of like, like the Khan Academy or uh, Coursera. So they had a whole bunch of courses on, uh, online. So I just had my brother print off all the PDFs and, all the, and I read all the textbooks. So I kind of have a master's in finance from MIT just because I've read all the material. But of course I don't have a certificate. I don't have, I didn't get the classroom experience. I didn't sit, you know, I don't have the, the cohort. Um, I can read the balance sheet. <laughs> That's a step in the right direction. Uh, yeah. Then of course, I had, so, I mean, then once I got out of prison, I got the, I'm a husky too in a, in a tree. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, it sounds like you're a very, you're a smart, a very smart guy. And I mean, that's kind of the one thing that I think a lot of people don't think about or realize is just because someone's been incarcerated or whatever, it doesn't mean they're, they're not smart or anything like that. They just made bad decisions or they had a bad, you know, a bad life experiences that took them to the wrong place. So, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's good there, to give them that opportunity. And there's a whole mixed bag of people that are in prison. You know, there's a lot of people with you know, mental health challenges, a lot of, like, even if you look at the drug offenders, a lot of them are drug users and some of them are drug sellers. And, of course, a lot of people are in there for, you know, property crimes. And that kind of means a lot of those people are hustlers. Like, whether you're selling drugs or you're selling stolen cars or stolen jackets, you know, you're a hustler. It's like you got hustle. You know how to make things work. You're just kind of in the wrong market. You yeah. know, they know all about the cost of goods sold and customer acquisition cost and lifetime value. They're just selling the wrong product and, <laughs> and it's illegal. So they can take that same skill and just really, re you know, reapply it to a legitimate endeavor and they'll be just fine. Yeah. And then, so the Prison Scholar Fund, how does how do prisoners get access to that? How many, how does how does that all work? Yeah, so good news and the bad news is we're the only organization in America that does what we do. And what mm -hmm. that means is any prisoner in America, and, you know, there's like, let's say there's about 3 million prisoners, let's say about 20% of them are kind of college ready. So there's about a couple hundred thousand people in America that could be going to college right now. And, of course, they're not going to college because the programs don't exist. So what they do is they have their friends or their family or their counselor or they write a letter to the state legislator, and th those people Google prison ed education. Our website comes up, they get our address, and they send us a letter. And they say, hey, man, I really want to go to school. Can you please help? So we get flooded with thousands of letters from all over the nation from people wanting to go to school. And, of course, we're a tiny organization, so we can only help a few people. But we also want to respond to these people, at least let them know, hey, we got your letter. We'll put you on a waiting list. We can't help you right now. Um, but that's a huge job. And then that also takes away from, if my focus is fundraising and building the organization, now I have one more thing on my plate, which is responding to thousands of letters, <laughs> uh, uploading, you know, opening the mail, scanning them in, uploading to the database, responding to them or not responding to them. Um, 
but at least we have a lot of really great volunteers to help with that. So okay. it'd be great to have funding. It'd be great to have funding to help you know these thousands and thousands of people. But we're working on it. We're trying to get there. Which is awesome. Um, what kind of stuff do you have coming up? I mean, how if people wanted to help help, how could they help you? Yeah, we have probably like a whole a whole list of all sorts of things you can do to help. And just like for example, Google is a really great organization. We have we get tons of help from them. I can kind of post my my job descriptions on their internal website, and they kind of pick and choose what they like to help with. And Microsoft is another really great corporation that helps, and they really help in a couple different ways. So with Microsoft. For every hour that a volunteer helps, Microsoft pays us 25 bucks. But Microsoft yeah. also matches the donation the employee makes. Um, so if they give us a thousand bucks, Microsoft matches it, we get two grand. Google does the same thing, but Google actually triple matches sometimes on some programs, and they give us ten dollars per hour that the volunteer helps. And it doesn't really sound like much, but if you know if you have a couple Microsoft workers volunteering a few hours a week, maybe you got four or five workers. Before you know it, those twenty-five dollars adds up, and it, pays, it you know pays for your rent. So those are really great workers because most of the people that work for Microsoft and and Google, you know, they have a lot of brain power. They're really smart people. They have a really big giving culture, so it's really great to have them involved. And you know, they ask the same questions like, "Hey, where can I help?" And usually the answer has to do with it's always great to talk to the volunteer or the potential volunteer and see what they're passionate about. You know, see where they like to help, what skill set they have. Because we we don't want to take a Google engineer and have him like stuffing envelopes. You know, we kind of want to match his skill set with what he really yeah. likes to help with. And a lot of them really like to help with like like, hey, I'm a really great you know software engineer, or I'm really great with uh, Google Analytics. And they kind of want to take that same same skill set and help someone else with that same skill set. But it could also be that they go, hey, I'm this uh, really great software coder, and I don't want to do any coding. <laughs> I just want to help you. Uh, sharpen pencils or whatever it is. It's really just a matter of matching them with whatever help we could could use. It could be anything from kind of like low level stuff like opening envelopes, scanning letters, doing database work, doing social media like Twitter and Facebook posts, doing research, uh, writing grants, evaluating grants, uh, AdWords. But once you get into the AdWords stuff, you kind of get into uh, keyword optimizing stuff and it gets kind of, kind of technical. Um, mm -hmm. So some stuff's really easy, some stuff's pretty high-tech. Um, we have a million things to help with, and you can just reach out, and I'd love to talk to any potential volunteers. And how, if somebody wanted to say, hey, I want to help you, how, how do they reach out to you? What, what's, what's your contact information? Yeah, the easiest one is just Dirk, D-I-R-K, at prisonscholars.org, and that's just prisonscholars.org. And you can go to our website, too, which is org, and we have a tab on there about you know helping out volunteering. There's also a contact page on there, so you can you can find my email address there. You can write us a letter if you want, but email is probably the way to go. Very nice. And I can, where, I can also where give you my want? phone number here. Oh, let me give you my oh, phone there you number go. Yeah, too. Go ahead and give you. But I should yeah. say that I almost never pick up if I don't recognize the number. So feel free to call and just leave a message, and I'll get back to you. And my number is 206-734-5425. That's 206-734-5425. Perfect. And make sure to send me those in a message after this so when then I post it, the, the episode, people will be able to get to them too. So, Perfect. Um, so where where do you want to take prison scholars, this prison scholar fund? Yeah, so our vision is really we want to make sure that every person in prison has the opportunity to reinvent themselves when they get out and you know productively reenter society. 
And our role in that is kind of the post-secondary role. Like, like I mentioned before, some people need maybe vocational training, some people might need drug counseling, and a certain subsection of those people in, in prison in general, you know, college might be the way to go. And, you know, the odds of coming back to prison really decrease through correctional education. You know, the national recidivism rate is 68%. The recidivism rate from people going through our program is 4%. So, you know, college education is really effective for keeping people out of prison. And so where we want to go with it is we want everyone to have that opportunity. But the question is, are we going to do all of that ourselves or are we influenced like maybe national legislation and bring back federal funding to, make, to move the needle in a different way? And that's kind of where yeah. we want to go with it. Because either we have to raise hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and do it all ourselves, or we could partner in different ways. And the idea is we want to bring the Pell Grant back for all Americans. And that's kind of my, the reason I went to D.C. in February to talk to some senators and figure out what do I need to do to help you guys change the law? And it turns out they need the data. So we have a really strong partnership with Microsoft to do randomized controlled files on our program to really understand the inputs to drive the outcomes. So we can go to Congress or anyone else and say, hey, we know exactly through all this, all this hardcore research we did, you know, machine learning and, and all, these, all, these, all these programs that Microsoft can do to really understand the variables that drive the outcomes we want and the outcomes we want are reduced recidivism and job placement. So once we actually have that whole map, we figured that data argument would sway all the, the hearts and minds in Congress. Well, it turns out, once you start talking to them, all they say is, well, of course the data has to be there, but how many of my constituents have you helped? So they just really want people stories. Yeah. And of course, for the data and for the people stories, we have to run programs. So we just have to, we have to scale up to a large enough place where we can get the data, we can get the people stories, we can go and win hearts and minds in Congress. Because it's really a bipartisan issue. You know, if you're a progressive Democrat, you believe in education for all because that's what you believe in. If you're yeah. a fiscal conservative, you want to save money. And even if you hate people, you know that educating them in a prison is going to save you money because you don't have to keep reincarcerating them. And uh, according to Washington State Institute for Public Policy, every dollar invested in prison education saves the taxpayers $19.76 and reduces victim costs, policing costs, criminal justice costs, and future prison construction and incarceration costs. So the return on investment is tremendous. But the thing is, it's really hard for the, the government to make that investment because all the public hears is, oh, my God, you're giving prisoners college degrees. That's terrible when I have to pay for my own daughter's college. And they'll yeah. say, like, should, should, my, should my daughter go to college to get a free education? <laughs> like, well, maybe, but it's probably a bad decision. Um, the reason probably. we give people education in prison is it breaks, you know, it's an intervention tactic. It breaks the cycle of recidivism and, and keeps them from coming back to prison. So, and it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's like, and as you know, people are kind of coming around now. For the last last ten, you know, maybe the last twenty years, they really haven't been seeing it. But more and more, I think people are coming closer to agreeing that rehabilitation is probably the way to go. And I think it is. I mean, it's like you know, I mean, from my own personal experience, like I said, I've never gone to jail. Amazingly, not because I've never done anything. I just never got caught. But. Um, <laughs> My my wife has a cousin who spent most of his teen years and his early 20s in jail, never got any education, never knew anything. So when he came out, he had a job for a little bit and then, and, you know, eventually gravitated back to, you know, doing the things that got him put in jail because that's the only thing he knew how to do. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like 
I'll go and do my little spiel in front of, I do it all the time in front of audiences. And a lot of times I'll be someplace speaking to a bunch of business guys, and some guys will come up, you know, there'll be some guy in his like 50s or 60s in a three-piece suit, you know, just super 100% businessman, you know, captain of his industry, and he'll tell me, hey, man, I was doing the same stuff you were doing. <laughs> he goes, they just didn't catch me. And then uh, I finally snapped out of it and started running a company. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. funny. And another fun, funny statistic I heard was I was doing a presentation at a conference in California, and there was somebody from Berkeley that was there, and she, was, she had this statistic that 92% of all Americans have done something that would got them a prison sentence. Now, a prison yeah. sentence is a year and a day. Like, if you do a really low-level crime, you just might go to jail. So in order to get a prison sentence, you have to do kind of something kind of serious. Mm -hmm. And, like, so 92% of all Americans have done something that could have got them a prison sentence of over a year. And yet a lot of people don't really realize that they fall in that category until they look at, you know, carrying drugs, you know, drunk driving, uh, yeah. X, Y, and Z. So, like, a lot of people can relate to prisoners if they've been there themselves or if they know someone that's been there, but when they realize they could have been there if they only got caught. And, and that's, just what, that's just it. I mean, I'll be honest. There's times in my life where I was 30 seconds away from being in jail. If I had stayed in a spot for 30 more seconds, I would have been busted along with everyone else. But I happened to, you know, go to the store to get a pack of cigarettes, so I wasn't there when everything went down. So, exactly. I mean, it's like, it's... It's all about timing. Like you said, 92% of people have done stuff that would have put them in jail for a year or longer. Just timing meant they didn't. Yeah, that, that number was you know? way higher than I thought it would. You know, I figured, I figured it would be a big number, but I was like, wow, 92%, that's almost everybody. Um, that is. Which is kind of surprising. It is. I mean, and like I said, a lot of it's timing. I mean, there's some really good people that have spent a lot of time in jail because of bad timing. They happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the exact same thing somebody else was who just wasn't wasn't caught. I know. You know. So we're trying to help those guys. We're trying to help the ones that did get caught kind of reinvent themselves. And if you think about it, um, like I'm kind of like a living proof like how powerful education is. You know, after 15 years in prison, I'll tell you, it's kind of a shocker to like to walk into Stanford. You're like, holy shit balls! I'm at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. What am I doing here? How did that happen? You know, but it all happened because this wonderful opportunity of education opened up to me just because my dad had a checkbook. And that's what it really comes down to is, like, I was really lucky. I mean, not going to prison, but I was lucky because my dad had the capacity to help me and the willingness. You know, I finally talked him into it, and he wrote a check. Yeah, but for many, many, many other people, they don't have a dad that's able or willing to write the check, and so they're just kind of screwed. And, like, what could have happened to that person if he could reinvent himself from prison? It's yeah. really hard to, you know, it's really hard to measure – if you don't commit a crime, then that's one thing. But what if he's really ambitious? What if he starts a company and hires 30 or 50 people? That's a whole different kind of impact. Oh, exactly. And, I mean, it's one of those things, too, that how many people you, do you think that came out of prison and ended up going right back to what they were doing would have done different if they had that college degree coming out, that yeah. had another option? And it just – it seems like a lot of times prisoners don't – you know, ex-prisoners don't have – the options, because they come out of prison, they don't have the education because, well, they've been in prison. You know, especially if it's something that happened when you were 18 or 19, you didn't get to go to college because you're in prison. So you don't have that education that your peers have. And then on top of that, you have to put down that you've been in, you, you've committed a felony or whatever. So you've been in jail and people don't want to hire you. So all of a sudden, yeah. 
you have no, you know, you feel like you have no choice. It's like, I need to pay rent. I need to do this. I need, I'm going to have to go rob a house. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, uh, I can't remember what study this was, but somebody kind of did the, uh, an analysis of how many things in your life are affected through a criminal record. And I think the number is like 22,000. It's like anything from getting a job to housing to just all sorts yeah. of things that they're, they're, they're colored by having a criminal record. So you always think you're like, oh, you go to prison, you do your time, you get out and it's over. Well, doing your time is just part of it. Then you have this, this trail that follows you forever. The stigma. Um, yeah, it's terrible. And then you wonder why these people can't get their lives back together. And you can always say, hey, these are just excuses. They're, uh, they're just making bad decisions. You know, but you're, a lot of these people, they, they could really use some help to you know, make the right decision. Yeah. So you kind of don't want to like, add make things harder for them that are already hard. And, you know, people, you know, people who haven't been there or haven't seen somebody there don't understand that they think they're making excuses or making bad decisions. But sometimes, like, I, you know, I was saying earlier is that you get to that point where you're not getting a job, you're not doing this, you need to pay your bills, you know, you need to do something to get by. And you get to that point that in your head, well, the only thing I know how to do is sell drugs or rob, you know, grocery stores or, you know, steal from houses or whatever, whatever put you in jail. It's like, well, that's the only thing I know how to do. So, and I have these other guys that I know that will help me with this. So I'm going to go hang out with them and go steal, rob houses. And then they get caught and they go back to jail and it continues the cycle where an education changes that to a degree of, hey, I may have some prison time, but I have a degree, you know. And people will look, they'll look more favorable on someone who's educated if they have, you know, now. Yeah, it, it may, you know, making a job a whole lot easier, and a job is really kind of the cornerstone of staying out. Um, you know, like, like, again, I said I was really lucky. And when I got out, I had family support, you know, I had a place to stay, I, I had food on the table. But a lot of people, they come out of prison, and they, they, they literally have nothing but like $40 gate money. They got 40 bucks, they have no place to stay, uh, they got a bus ticket to somewhere. So what are you going to do with 40 bucks in your pocket but no place to, to lay your head? Um, you're probably going to go back to hustling. I mean, sure, yeah, it's an yeah. excuse, but, man, what are you going to do? I guess you can go to a homeless shelter. Or, you know, things are going to be kind of tough for a while. Um, mm -hmm. The last thing you want to do is make things a little bit tougher so they, they kind of fall on the, the easiest thing to do, which is, like, just go sell some drugs. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not an easy path. So the transition piece is, Something we're also trying to work on, but that's just you know that's what one more thing to focus on. So we need to focus on the education piece first. But yeah, this it's a multifaceted problem, definitely. Definitely. So, I'm trying to think if there's any other questions I had for you, not that I can think of. I mean, is there anything else you want to tell the listeners and know about you know everything that you're working on and doing? Well, thanks so much for the platform to talk about what we do, and you know I'm I'm really passionate about what we do, and you know sometimes. Sometimes I fantasize about not doing this work anymore and just getting a job at Home Depot. So I can just show up and punch the clock and go home. And then like, I don't have any of the stresses of what I do anymore. But the thing is, you know, I'm passionate about it because it really changed my life. And I see the, the lives of other people we really changed. So unfortunately, I'm kind of, I'm kind of locked into this because I love what I do. And uh, we'd love to have some help. And, you know, any financial contributions, volunteers are always welcome around the office or the thing they can do remotely. So please reach out and let's have a conversation. If not, you know, I'll just see you in the mud or the next race we're running and uh, say hi. Perfect. And then one last time before we go, um, let everyone know what your contact info is. Yeah, so it's Dirk, D-I-R-K, 
at prisonscholars.org. And my phone number is 206-734-5425. And of course, you can just find us online at www.prisonscholars.org. Of course, we're also on Facebook, forward slash Prison Scholars, LinkedIn, Prison Scholars, Twitter, Prison Scholars. You can just Google Prison Scholar Fund. You know, that's the official name of the organization. And the page will show up with all sorts of pages, things. So we're not hard to find. So just Google Prison Scholar Fund or find us doing those other other routes. Just give me a call. That's why I go have coffee, talk about what you're passionate about. Perfect. All right. I will make sure that when I post this that I have links so people can find find your stuff easy. Um, and other than that, um, thank you for being on, and it's been a blast. It's been a blast. Thanks so much. See you All right. Places. See you then. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the BeastNet podcast brought to you by Beast OCR. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear. You can find us on Facebook or at BeastOCR.com.